Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. This morning we are continuing on our study through the book of Acts. And uh, today we're looking at Paul's journey to Rome. I know last week's was also Paul's journey to Rome, but there's like a little subtitle to each of these now. Um, And this one is Shipwrecked But Saved. Paul's journey to Rome, shipwrecked but saved. Our main text is going to be Acts 27, verses 27 through 44. We're going to finish out chapter 27 this morning. Just for a reminder of the context, since we're continuing in a, a, in a clear narrative account of what is going on in Paul's journey on a ship in a storm. But in our study last week, we covered the first 26 uh, verses of chapter 27. And we saw Paul finally beginning in his to make his way to Rome as a prisoner. He had appealed to Caesar. To Caesar he would go, Festus said. Now finally he's been put on a boat, a ship. We saw how two of Paul's friends, Aristarchus and Luke, were able to go with Paul on that journey. We saw the favor that God had given Paul with the Roman centurion named Julius, who had been given charge of Paul and the other prisoners who were on the ship. And early on in the journey, we even saw how slow and difficult things were uh, for this whole crew. Eventually, they made it from Caesarea to the island of Crete. We have an image this past week, Josh Dean, or maybe it was last Sunday, said, you know, it'd be really awesome if we had an image, a map. Kind of small. Thought it was going to be bigger once it was projected. I apologize for that. But if you can see... They started from Judea, the area of Judea and Caesarea. They traveled north, west, uh, Cilicia, Myra, that's all modern-day Turkey. And so as they're traveling away from Israel, the nation of modern-day Syria, they started traveling west past Turkey to the island of Crete there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And... While they were on the southern side of the island of Crete, Paul made a little speech. He advised all these trained sailors like, hey, you know what? We really shouldn't, we shouldn't keep doing this thing. This is not going to end well for us. I perceive. I've been through a few things in my life. You know, Paul could have said, I've been shipwrecked three times, not looking to make it a fourth. I've, I've seen maybe this sort of circumstance before. Things haven't been going well. It's going to end in disaster and much loss. Both of the cargo and the ship, they were on a grain uh, ship heading to Rome, but also of all their lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship and, and went with their advice instead. And so they decide, hey, we're going to find a better place to, to winter on the island of Crete. They started to travel southwest to the southwest tip of the island we have one more image if you go back from crete what we're going to find is them making it all the way to the island of malta here at the end of acts chapter 27 but that that whole journey there is upwards of 500 miles that they're going to be traveling in this typhoon which came on the sea while they were traveling not long after they left crete The typhoon came and stuff just all of a sudden very quickly started to go wrong. They started to drift southwest towards Sirtis, which is uh, modern-day Libya, known for its sandbars. And so they they were afraid, so they just kind of, they just started to be driven by the wind. Like, okay, we're going to try to just get to anywhere, anywhere other than south, because we don't want to run aground. So they just kind of kept traveling west. And they started to realize, like, stuff's not getting better. They try to secure the ship. They throw things overboard. The, the, the sun and the stars hadn't appeared for many days. The storm clouds were so dark that, that they lost all sense of navigation as they were traveling. And because of that, they, they got to a point where Luke tells us that they were, they were so beaten down by the storm. They were so disheartened by the darkness of the storm, that they they came to a point where they had given up all hope that they would be saved. 
But the Lord sends an angel to Paul one night as they're there in that storm with a message. He relayed that message to the rest of the passengers on that ship, which we, we find out is actually 276 passengers. And I want us to pick up reading in verse 21 through verse 26, just to get kind of the, the final bit of context here for us. Luke 27, beginning in verse 21, it says, But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, Paul said. Take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Paul there twice encourages those on this ship to take heart. Be encouraged. Why? It was a really discouraging situation. We already knew that they were feeling hopeless. Paul himself felt hopeless. He needed, he was hopeless and he was fearful, which is clear be, by the angel saying, don't be afraid. You don't tell somebody to not be afraid when they're not afraid. I mean, you could say that, but it's kind of ridiculous to say it when the other person's not feeling fearful in the first place. Paul needed that word. Paul relayed that word to all these passengers on that ship in the midst of all that was going on and getting beaten down by the storm, the typhoon-like weather, the loss of navigation, going a long time without food. Like this was, a, this was a moment where they needed this. They needed this message. And Paul seeks to encourage with the encouragement he had received from the Lord. He tells them, look, I believe God. It's going to be just as it was told to me. We're going to run aground on a certain island, though. It's going to happen. I wish I had better news on that front, but it, we're, we're going to be shipwrecked. But I want us to understand here, <clears throat> as I kind of already referenced, that, that this was now going to be the fourth shipwreck Paul was going to experience in his Christian life seeking to serve Jesus. Four times shipwrecked, because he was seeking to bring the gospel to people. You know, I think there's this common sort of misconception that can kind of happen that, well, if you're doing the Lord's work, everything's going to be great. It's going to, you know, it's all going to work out and stuff's just going to be, you know, you're going to be happy and healthy and whatever the other third one is. But, you know, that whole bogus prosperity thing. But look, the reason I point that out before we move on into our portion of scriptures this morning is because what Paul was going through here, along with so many other things he and others in the New Testament went through, not to mention just through church history and to modern day, is just another situation here that clearly shows that the saying, God won't give you more than you can handle, is just not true. It's not true. I think the saying is actually taken from a scripture where it says that, that in temptation, God will provide a way out. Temptation. Okay, so that's one thing. But just trials, suffering, difficulty, persecution, it doesn't say God won't give you more than you can handle and all of those other things. That's, that's not biblically accurate. You know, I'm sure the previous three shipwrecks that Paul went through, plus everything Paul actually describes as his Christian experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 27, where he talks about being beaten, you know, five times, whipped 39 times, multiple times, having that be the case, shipwrecked, being a night and a day in the deep, and in hunger often, and in cold, and naked, and in peril, and all these things, I want us to understand, when he wrote that, that was before he even got to Jerusalem where he was arrested a couple years earlier. That's not even including his two years of 
unjust imprisonment in Caesarea. That's not including all that he's now going through here. It didn't include that he got beaten by the mob in Jerusalem. I'm sure all of those other things were more than he could handle in the moment. And yet now he's going to be shipwrecked for a fourth time. You know, we may look at that and go like, God, give the guy a break. Man, like, he just can't catch a break. He just cannot. And though Paul's confident God is going to save him and the rest of those on that ship, this was not an enjoyable or easy or comfortable situation to have to go through for the Apostle Paul. Listen, God will bring or allow things into our lives that are more than we can handle. Oftentimes so that we don't rely upon our own strength or our own wisdom or our own resources, but so that we rely and lean wholly upon and trust Jesus completely. When when there's more than we can handle, we're taken to this place in our lives spiritually where we're at the end of ourselves and we have no choice but to surrender it all to the Lord, to depend fully upon the Lord because we know that if anything's going to change, if anything's going to get better, it's only because God intervenes. It's only because God shows up. It's only because God gives grace and strength and peace and comfort and joy in those times. And as much as we might not like that we're brought to those places, know that that place is such a good place to be in. Because there is a fellowship of suffering that Paul talks about in the book of Philippians. There is something that happens. There's an intimacy between us and the Lord that takes place in those times where we've only got Jesus. I just, I only have you, Jesus. And when the things are, are more than we can handle, know that those things, what, whatever that is, that's too much for us, is never more than our God can handle. Things at times will be more than we can handle. It's never more than our God can handle. He is infinitely bigger and stronger than whatever it is we might be facing, and yet he's at the same time personal and near, and he cares, and he wants to see us through every one of those things. And even in this bad situation, I believe we see the care of the Lord towards Paul and all those on that ship. And so let's continue on into this account and read verses 27 through 32. Luke, continuing on this account here, he says, Now, when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers, verse 32, cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. So 14 days after they left Fairhavens, that area on the southern section of the island of Crete, they, they find themselves driven up and down in what Luke says was the Adriatic Sea. So again, they've been driven about 500 miles west of Crete in, those, in just 14 days. So they're, they're really moving here by this storm. And according to the Bible knowledge commentary, the, the Adriatic Sea, because when you read that and then you look at a map, you're like, that doesn't make sense. Because the Adriatic Sea is actually in like the most northern section of water on the eastern side of Italy. 
So they're not way up there. So that, that's the Adriatic Sea. Then it's the Ionian Sea. And then there's the Mediterranean Sea. So in the New Testament times, it, uh, according to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the Adriatic Sea was a term in New Testament times used for the sea not only between Italy and Greece, but also south of Italy and Sicily, where my homeboys live, to, that's like the very small part of like my mixed nationality, but I like to claim it, um, to the island of Malta. So it kind of, in, in their mind, when they said the Adriatic, it kind of included that whole section there. But, but things with this typhoon were, were really bad still. In, in fact, um, in, in chapter 28, verse 2, we're told that it was cold and raining when they finally make it onto the island. So it, it's, it's, it's cold, it's, it's raining, they're being driven up and down by these huge waves. And, and about midnight on the 14th day, the, the sailors sensed they were nearing some land. Maybe they heard water crashing against something. They, they couldn't see anything because of the storm. They couldn't see anything because of the dark of the night. So they decide, hey, we're going to take some soundings. And that just meant in that day that they would take a, a line, a rope, with lead on the end of it. And they would throw it into the water. And, and the lead would cause the rope to sink down to wherever, you know, there was, there was ground. And then they would kind of measure that off. They'd pull the rope back up. Okay, we know how much is there. And, and when they did that the first time, they found out that it was 20 fathoms and a fathom was a measurement of about six feet so the first time they take measurements they're like cool it's 120 feet deep we, we've got some wiggle room here we're not gonna crash but they go a little further they throw the rope with the lead in again they take soundings again and it's 15 fathoms now it's 90 feet deep so they're like okay we're we're really getting close to some land we can't see what's going on but it's really bad. So what they did was, because they were afraid they were going to crash onto likely that word rocks referring to the coral reefs. There's a lot of coral reefs there around the island of Malta. And if you look at pictures, it's beautiful there. It's like amazing. But they decide, look, we're going to drop some anchors. They drop four anchors from the back of the ship, the rear of the ship, try to keep themselves fixed in place. And after doing that, Luke tells us that they prayed for day to come. They, we don't know if that was just the sailors, if that was everybody else on the ship, except for them, but they prayed for day to come. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul and his two friends did not pray. Well, they prayed. We were fine. We didn't need to pray. But, but clearly, they weren't panicking like everyone else was, and so they weren't praying the same way everyone else was. You know, while the rest of the ship maybe was just praying for some light to appear so they could see what was going on. Maybe, maybe Paul and his companions are praying for the hearts of these people. God, soften their hearts. Bring them to salvation. You know, no doubt Paul and his friends were taking these opportunities to, to share the gospel and point people to Jesus through all this. But as that panic and fear set in, we see in verse 30 that the sailors saw an opportunity to, uh, to escape from the ship. So they come up with a story. Hey, we're going to let the skiff down. Remember, they brought the skiff up into the ship because they were afraid either that the, that the, the, the skiff was going to crash into the ship and cause damage or, or that the skiff was just going to sink because of the storm. So they bring the skiff into the boat. And they're like, hey, we're going to lower it back into the water and we're going to tell them we're going to put more anchors down. Sounds great. But that was a lie. Paul seems to discern that their story was false. They were just seeking to save themselves, leave, leave the rest of the passengers to be shipwrecked. And so Paul speaks to the centurion and the soldiers. He tells them, look, the only way we're all going to be saved is if the soldiers actually, or I'm sorry, the sailors stay on the ship. Now, clearly, the centurion wasn't going to ignore Paul's advice again. He, he did the first time. Remember when they were on Crete? Paul's like, look, it's going to end in disaster. He's like, I think, the sa I think the sailors know better than you. I'm going to go with their advice. Now Paul's like, hey, if these guys don't stay in the ship, everyone's going to die. 
They're like, you got it, Paul. We trust you this time, Paul. I mean, everything that you said is happening now, Paul. It was, so <laughs> we're going to go with you on this one. So uh, they, they, they believe him. They take him at his word on this. And, and it seems on their own initiative, the soldiers just kind of, they hear that and they go, well, cool, we're just going to, we're going to cut the ropes away. Like, let's get rid of the skiff so no one has a chance of escaping. There's no other option and, and just kind of let it drift unmanned into the sea. Now, the, the logical and sensible thing would be in a storm like that, and you know that you're going to crash, is to get into the skiff, to get into the lifeboat. You don't want to stay in the big ship that's going to crash. You want to get into the smaller boat that's easier to maneuver, that, that doesn't have so much depth on it. You're not going to have the same sort of problems. Get on that thing and, and be safe. Even though it was a very selfish move on the part of the sailors to, to leave the rest of the passengers to have no other options but stay in the ship. But, but what the sailors didn't know was that the only way for everyone to stay alive like God had promised through the angel he sent to Paul was for everyone to remain on the ship and actually be shipwrecked. Shipped? Wrecked? Ship. No T. Shipwrecked. It's warm in here. Anyways, I'll blame it on the warmth. You know, it's not logical, I mean, from a very worldly perspective. It's not logical to get rid of a lifeboat and believe that being shipwrecked was the way to be saved, the way to be kept alive. And yet, that's exactly the way God was going to work here. But, but isn't it like us at times to want to escape things because of our own logic, our own thinking, our own wisdom, or maybe what others are telling us we should do to try to avoid or get out of the storm, the trial, or, or whatever it is that's, that's gotten us out of our comfort zone because our default can easily be self-preservation. You know, self-preservation keeps us from walking by faith a lot. Self-preservation self keeps us from obeying the Lord often. Because God doesn't lead us into a safe life. Now, it's not that God's just careless and he's like, I'm going to send you into disaster. I'm going to send you into danger. I'm going to send you into a horrible situation. But his top priority for our lives is not I just want to keep them all safe. Because living for Jesus is not a safe life, but it is the best life. You know, you could live a life of safety here on this earth. You could get in a bubble. You could be bubble boy. You could bubble boy it. I'm bubble boying it. That's what, that's what I'm going for. I'm going to go live in a cave. I'm going to stockpile it. I'm going to hermit this thing. You know, doomsday prepper, sort of like, I, I'm going to stay safe. Yet if you don't have the salvation of Jesus, you might have been safe for 110 years even, but eternally be damned to hell. Safety is not God's top priority. Salvation of the soul is God's top priority for us, but also for others. And so in this Life of faith that's not safe, but it's great. It's not free from suffering, but it's full of just the, the blessings and the richness of knowing Christ and walking in this relationship with him that has us interacting with other sinful people that are also jacked up like us and are being sanctified by the Spirit of God it's not a safe life. It's not a comfortable life necessarily, but it is the greatest life that you and I could ever live. You know, the, the truth is most of us have skiffs. We have ways out. We have an escape plan that we like to keep secured on board the ship of our life and use 
when we want to take a different option instead of trusting the Lord, or, or maybe when we think we know better than the Lord, or whatever it might be. And so we'll drop that skiff into the water, so to speak, and at times, at times we'll do that and we'll excuse ourselves from obeying God's word. From listening to the voice of his spirit, from following the leading of his spirit, instead of just humbling ourselves, trusting Jesus, staying on the ship, staying in the thing, even though it might be difficult and, and actually cutting away the ropes. We like to keep a backup plan, don't we? So that when, you know, when God doesn't come through, like, because, you know, there's always that chance God's not going to come through. I got this thing in my back pocket, my skiff. But that's our pride, thinking that our, our option is better than God's plan. My way is better than God's way. You know, before my family and I moved here to plant this church, along with some amazing people who also did the same, not even just moving from Southern California, but even moving from, you know, Antioch, places nearby, God spoke to me really clearly one morning. I would say the, the probably the clearest or the closest thing I could say to like God speaking audibly to me. Not that I would say he spoke audibly to me, but it was very clear that the Lord spoke to me one morning. I was at church, our sending church. I was off to the side waiting to pray with people. I was just worshiping the Lord. No one was coming over for prayer, which was fine. Just worshiping the Lord. And I just remember so clearly the Lord just speaking to me to burn the ships. And it was one of those moments where it was like, that phrase, like, it's not like, oh, I've just been talking to somebody about burning a ship. Like, first of all, it's a weird thing. to. I, it's not like I just recently had, like, read about Hernan Cortez and that whole situation of him burning the ship. So it was people under him had no way of escape but but that moment and i and instantly i just started having a dialogue with the lord like lord what burn the ships what do you mean but for me that was a cutting of the ropes to the skiff sort of moment god was making it clear to me that in his call upon my life to come plant this church i wasn't to have a plan B. I wasn't to have an escape option. You know, when things get hard, that I would just bail, like, okay, this didn't work out. I don't really like how it's going, so move on to something else. But that I was to be all in with this plan and with no looking back. And he spoke that because I had my own anxieties and uncertainties about how this was all going to work out. I had heard from other pastors even up here of like, man, there's been like several attempts to plant a Calvary here. All of them have fallen apart. They've all gone under. And it's like, how is this going to be any different? I struggled with that. It's not like I was some seasoned church planner. I was an assistant pastor. I'd never even been a lead pastor before. God, <laughs> me? There? But, but in God telling me to burn the ships, he was also telling me to trust him. That he would do it and that he'd get all the glory for it as we just sought to be obedient to him and, and submit to the leading and work of his spirit. And by his grace and power, he brought us here. He brought others here. And he's don't, done so many amazing things here over the years. There's a church family, a, a family of believers here where there wasn't one previously. And he continues to teach us to trust him. But it's so easy to have a plan B and C and D and so on. Instead of just going with God's plan A, even if it doesn't look like we want it to, or maybe thought it would work out or the way we prayed it would. But look, if you've got a, a skiff this morning, whatever that is, maybe that skiff is not like an escape plan. Maybe that skiff for you is like an idol that needs to be cut away. 
I want to encourage you, and, th- and this is for me, just as much for me too, to, to cut the ropes to that thing and trust the word of the Lord, the voice of his spirit. Trust the plan of God fully. We're, we're to trust in the Lord with all our heart, to not lean on our own understanding. And isn't that often what we do? We lean on our own understanding. What I understand, I go with. When I don't understand something, I don't want to go with it. And I don't always understand what God's doing. You don't always understand what God's doing or what he's allowing. But we're to trust him with all our heart, not with part of it. I'll trust you with this thing. I'll trust you with that thing. But God, I'm going to keep this thing because I, I, I know how to do this. I know how to make this thing work. Acknowledge him in all our ways. Include him. Seek him in everything. And that if we do that, he will direct our path, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us. And his path may include the storm, may include difficulty at times. But we can trust that he's with us and he's got us and he's leading us through all of it. But now with their options removed... No longer having this gift. Everyone's remaining on the ship. Let's read verses 33 through 38. It says, And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. So... 14 days without food, like if you do a fast for 14 days and you're just chilling, you're not doing any sort of, you're not exerting yourself physically, 14 days, you're feeling it. You're, you're feeling the effect of not having the nourishment that your body needs. You are not as strong as you were 14 days earlier when you had your last meal. But added to that, they are on a ship in a typhoon. They're getting tossed all over the place. They're having to probably brace themselves constantly so they're not thrown overboard in that state of not eating for 14 days. So you imagine they are exhausted at this point. They're exhausted. They're weak. They're discouraged. They're feeling hopeless. And and now in that place, Paul encourages them, guys, let's eat some food. It's just a very practical thing. You know, sometimes we discount the practical things because it just doesn't seem very spiritual. God cares about the practical. He cares about your physical nourishment as well. Eat a snack. Your blood sugar's low? Eat a little something. You're a little hangry? Get some food. You're not unspiritual if you go without food. Fasting doesn't make you more spiritual. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that God will call us into at times. That's between you and the Lord. But that doesn't make somebody else less spiritual. He goes, eat some food, guys. Let's eat. He's like, okay. Takes the food, and he just thanks God. And he breaks the, can you imagine how great that probably felt at that time? Like, breaking the bread, starts to eat it. Everyone's watching Paul, and they're like, This guy's really eating right now. We're all stressed out. My stomach's in knots. I don't even want to eat, but Paul's telling me to do it. He's looking like he's enjoying it. I'm going to eat too. And they all were encouraged, and they began to eat as much as they needed. Paul wanted those people to be kept safe. He wanted them to gain strength for what was to come with the shipwreck. And also because, look, when they got to land, they were not going to have any food supplies. It wasn't like, hey, let's go hit up the McDonald's. I see it. I see the big golden arches on the shore. Maybe McDonald's was a bad 
reference. Some of you are like, could you have chosen a nice restaurant instead of McDonald's? Um, they weren't going to have anything. Look, we need to eat because we don't even know when we're going to have another meal. We don't know what kind of food sources are on this island. Eat some food. Get some nourishment. Get some strength. You know, Paul, again, consider this whole situation. Storm's going on. Everyone's hopeless. Everyone's discouraged. No one's eaten. They're all exhausted. And here's Paul. Paul is not the captain of the ship here. Paul's not like one of the free individuals on the ship who's just kind of, this is just, he's just a kind of a part of everything. He's a prisoner, imprisoned unjustly, now going to be judged by Caesar. And, and yet Paul is the one who here is stepping up to provide leadership, to provide encouragement, to seek to bring hope to those in a stressful situation. I just love that by God's grace and power, he, he put Paul into the situation to be a, a leader at a really ne needed time when no one else was fulfilling that role. And we, and we see here that Paul led by example. He didn't tell everybody before this, hey guys, take heart. Yes, the ship's going to be destroyed, but God's going to save us and keep us all alive. And then Paul's the one who is freaking out and he's acting all stressed out and he's panicked. No, Paul said he believed God. That he trusted his God and then he conducted himself in line with that profession, in line with that confidence that he had from the Lord because of the promises of God. And after telling them to take nourishment, he takes the bread again, he gives thanks, he prays. In the presence of them all, with all eyes on him. And he breaks the bread, he begins to eat. And, and Paul's prayer and confidence in the Lord encouraged everyone else. And I want us to see that in the midst of this gnarly storm, in the midst of being a prisoner, in the midst of the promise of a fourth shipwreck, that Paul gave thanks to God. And that his giving of thanks was a witness, an example to others. I mean, if we were in Paul's shoes, we might be going, I don't have anything to give thanks for. My life's been hard. It's only gotten worse. What do I have to give thanks for? I'm in a typhoon with a bunch of smelly guys. None of us have eaten. We're all exhausted. We're about to crash. What, I mean, and yet he's the one here who's, who's praying. He's thanking God. What does that mean? He's worshiping his God. He's praising his God. Everyone else is panicked. Everyone else is fearful. And they're looking to Paul and they're seeing this guy who's a prisoner. And he's the one giving thanks. He's the one seeing the goodness of God in his circumstances that were only bad. And it's easy to pray and give thanks, to worship God when everything is good. When everything's working out the way that we want, when we're comfortable, when things around us are peaceful, when we're not in the midst of a trial, but it's another thing entirely to pray and give God thanks when things are not going good, when they're not working out the way that we want, when we are out of our comfort zone, when things in our lives are chaotic and uncertain, and when we're in the midst of a trial, a storm. But we need to learn from Paul's example, and maybe even ask God to teach us how to give Him thanks because he's just as worthy of our thanksgiving, our praise, our worship when we're in the storm as when we are in a season of ease. To ask him to help us to see things that we can give him thanks for even when things are difficult. Because again, he deserves our thanksgiving, our worship in every situation and season. 
but know that we also benefit personally and spiritually when we learn to be people of prayer, people of thanksgiving, of worship, of praise. Because God meets us and ministers to us as we worship Him. You know, oftentimes when we're in a really bad spot and we can, we can press into the Lord and worship Him, you know what happens in those times of worship? We're reminded of who our God is. We're reminded of who He's always been. We're reminded of how He's shown up in the past. When we worship Him, what are we doing? We're getting our eyes off of us and our situations, and we're getting our eyes directed back to the Lord where it belongs. And, and worship primarily first and is, is for the Lord, but there's a secondary kind of blessing of worship that God actually meets us. And He ministers to us, and He does things in our hearts. But there's a kind of a third element of that, and that's that our worship is also something God will use as a witness and example to those around us. This was true for the Apostle Paul here. When other people are watching us go through something that's maybe really difficult, but we're still thanking our God instead of becoming bitter, jaded, hardened, angry people, God uses that. In the lives of those who are looking at us and wondering why, why are we able to give the God thanks? Why are we still praying? Why are we still worshiping? Once all 270 passengers had eaten enough, they lighten the ship even more. They throw out all the wheat into the sea. And this was a really costly move here. Since this grain ship was bringing all this wheat to Rome, and now all of it was going to be lost at sea. But this was a, a final effort to keep the ship from sinking further away from land. And so let's read our final verses here, verses 39 through 44. It says, verse 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach, onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, this was the oars coming out of the sides of the ship. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, likely a channel, they, they ran the ship aground. And the prow, the front of the ship, stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern, the rear of the ship, was being broken up by the violence of the waves and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land." Once the sky brightened some in the morning hours, they were able to see the land, but they didn't know what land they were looking at, even though we know in the beginning of chapter 8 that the island was called Malta. They had lost their ability to navigate, so they, they didn't really know what was going on. Paul didn't know either because he just knew that it was a certain island. He wasn't told what island that they were going to be shipwrecked on, but they see this bay with a beach. They try to make it to that area, but their plan and efforts don't work. They're stuck, immovable. The, the ship is beginning to be broken apart by the, the violent waves. And, and then we see kind of a shift happen. All of a sudden, there's this new plan. Now, we, we already saw in verse 30 that the sailors wanted to escape on the skiff and, and leave the rest of the passengers to be shipwrecked. But, but now in verse 42, we see the, the soldiers coming up with the plan to kill all the prisoners, which included Paul, so that none of them would escape. And understand, the reason for this wasn't because these guys were just cruel, but because if prisoners did escape on their watch, it could cost them their life once they got back to Rome. So they thought, hey, like this, this is the right thing to do. But, but this time, the centurion Julius is the one who steps in because he wanted to save Paul 
And so he keeps the soldiers from their plan. And instead, Julius commands those that were able to swim. So, you know, it's not like modern day. Hey, we have swimming lessons. Most people know how to swim. Probably a good portion of these guys had no idea how to swim. And not only is it not knowing how to swim, again, there's a typhoon. It, it, it's really bad. The weather condition is really bad. So, hey, those of you that can swim and make it to shore, go for it. Those of you that can't, there's lots of debris in the water now because of the ship breaking apart. So just grab onto something. Just try to float in. Like, just, just, just make it. And, and so we're told there at the end of verse 44, so it was that they all escaped safely to land. What does that mean? God made good on his promises. He didn't keep them from danger, but he kept them safe in the danger. He, he was faithful. But I love that it's not Paul here who gets the credit for all of them making it to land safely with, with not a life being lost of the 276 passengers on that ship. He didn't get the credit because he didn't put the focus on himself, but on the God to whom he belonged and to whom he served. His God who encouraged them when they had lost hope through that angel who had promised their safety and who brought about this deliverance. And in closing here, as the worship team comes out, back up, look, in, in those times, as I said earlier, where, where things are more than we can handle, You know, I, I, I pray that we would find our hope and our peace and our help in our God who is more than able to handle those things that you and I cannot handle because he can handle them. To not be overcome by our situations, but to trust in and rest in the Lord. You know, I, I, I pray we, we recognize any skiffs that are secured in our own hearts, our minds that give us and out, a, a way of escape from trusting the Lord or, or walking by faith or obeying Him. And, and I pray we would humble ourselves, that we would cut the ropes, we would burn the ship, so to speak. And we trust His word, the voice, the leading of His spirit, His plan, instead of our own. And I, and I pray we learn from Paul's example and become people who even in the midst of the storm pray and give thanks to God, worship Him, praise Him because He's worthy. Seeing that in that position of heart, He also wants to minister to us and, and also use us as a witness and example to those around us who are watching. And maybe some this morning, you know, are, are, are in the midst of the storm. Maybe you feel like the ship of your life is stuck. Maybe you feel like it's being broken up by the, the force of the storm of your situation, maybe things are a mess, but this morning, would we see that our gracious, merciful, good, powerful, redeeming, delivering Savior Jesus is with us in the midst of it all, and ultimately, that deliverance that we all long for is the ultimate deliverance of being glorified and brought into heaven with Jesus. No more storms, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more loss. Fullness of joy at his right hand pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this account that you preserved for us. Lord, the things that you have to teach us through it. God, I pray that we would learn. Lord, that we would be encouraged. Lord, that we would be challenged, Lord, in areas where we need to be challenged. God, maybe for some of us, we've been dealing with things that are more than we can handle. But God, will we... Lord, offload those cares to you. Lord, we, we see that you can handle them and, and rest and trust in you. Lord, in the midst of things not even being figured out yet or being better yet, Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, help us to see that you're faithful, that you're present, that you're working. 
God, if any of us have skiffs, Lord, in our lives, an escape plan, some, something else, Lord, that we've been keeping sort of in our, in our, in our lives, that, Lord, we use an ex- as an excuse to not obey you or to not walk by faith or to, or to not trust you at times. God, would we cut those things away? Let them drift off into the sea. And God, would we trust you wholeheartedly? Trust your plan. That we'd walk by faith. That we'd lean upon you and not on our own understanding. And God, those that are in the midst of the storm and stuff is breaking up, stuff is messy and difficult, Lord, things are hard, God, would they see that you're there? Lord, maybe for some, there's things that are there because of their own doing. Stuff's messy because they, they contributed to it. Lord God, would, would you redeem even things that seem like they're they're unredeemable God would you bring deliverance God would you bring help would you give grace would you give hope Lord would you bring healing God would you bring provision and God would you help us to to worship you Lord not not just on the mountaintop but Lord also in the storm And God, in that place, would you minister to our hearts and God, use us as an example and witness to others. But look, if you're here today and you've not just first ever opened your heart to Jesus Christ, you've not ever received his salvation, his his forgiveness, this morning, that's being extended to you, if that's you. You know, again, we we could try to live a safe life, but, but then have eternal destruction awaiting us. Jesus wants to bring salvation in the truest and fullest way in our lives. And so if that's you this morning and and you, you want Jesus to save you, you want him to forgive you of your sins, you want the promise of heaven, would you stand wherever you're at? And if you're already standing, I, 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 I get where you're, where you're at. But if there's anyone who you're going, that's me this morning. I want Jesus' salvation. I want to know that my debt has been paid before the Lord. Well, Lord, you know where each heart is at, God. For those who are in need of your salvation this morning, God, would they in their own hearts, Lord, just cry out to you, Lord, confess, Lord, their sin to you. Lord, repent, turn away from their sin and, and turn to you by faith, Lord, asking you to forgive them and to save them and to be their Lord, to be their God. Lord, that they would humble themselves and find salvation and forgiveness and hope and new life in Jesus this morning. But God, as we respond to your word in these songs of praise and the taking of communion and the opportunity to be prayed for by the, the prayer counselors, God, would you continue to move in this place or continue to move in our hearts, God, and be glorified. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.